This is Heavy Strategy, where the questions are sometimes more interesting than the answers. I'm Jonna Johnson. This is Greg Farrow. Greg, today we wanted to talk about the great resignation and what it means for IT departments around the world. All right. So I want to get off on the on the right foot here because I believe it's not a great resignation. The implication in resignation is that people are quitting, but they're not going somewhere else. What's happening is they're quitting your company or they're quitting their current job or they're quitting your team, but then they go somewhere else. So it's not a great resignation. It's not as if the headcount suddenly disappears from the market as a whole. So I actually see this, you know, this so-called great resignation, which makes great title, right? And actually reflects the personal views of a small number of executives who feel, often feel personally affronted by the fact that their people don't like them, you know, enough to resign and walk out the door. I think it's more of a great realization. I think people are realizing and reevaluating things about their lives, things about their work post pandemic. And not that we're actually out of the COVID pandemic, it's still here, but they've realized that there are things about their life that aren't happy. They've had a chance to reevaluate working from home. So I would rather call it the great realization. It's not that people hate work, they actually love work in many cases. They enjoy what they do. Mm. It gives meaning and structure and validation to them and an opportunity to grow and learn. Certainly that's what work means to me. The thing that we don't like is all the trappings of traditional office work. I like learning about new technology, helping my clients put that technology into practice, solving the operational problems that come with putting an emerging technology into practice. Mm. That's what gets me up in the morning. What I do not like is commuting, wearing stupid clothes because this is our our dress code. Mm -hmm. A long story about that, but once in my career very early on, I was told I had to wear a skirt, even though my job at the time required crawling around underneath computers, which I found insane. I mean, that's just terrible. I, was, yeah, so I just wanted to say that that is ridiculous. A young woman uh, crawling around under desks in a skirt, there's no way you can achieve. Fortunately, it was the 80s. So the fashion was accommodating. So I, I still remember the skirts I bought. They were high-waisted and mm. went well below the knees and they were made out of cotton so I could wash them after I yeah, wash yeah. all the grime yeah, off. But, but still, yeah. still, that's insane. And coming back to things I don't like. I don't like a commute. I don't like the coffee they have usually. I will usually buy my own coffee pot. I don't like the decor because it's not been designed mm -hmm. with my aesthetic sense in mind. I don't like the way the place smells. I don't like running into colleagues who simply want to waste my time and mm. I'm just, and all I need to do is go to the bathroom and come back and finish my project. All of those things I don't like. I, I like interacting with co colleagues. Uh, I think that's great. I like spontaneous interactions with colleagues when I'm in the mood for spontaneous interactions mm. with colleagues. That's right. But that small group of executives you referred to, those guys confuse the trappings of work with the work itself. And they're mm. the ones saying, if you don't love running into your colleagues on the way to the bathroom, there's something wrong with you. And I think the vast majority of workers are going, no, <laughs> that's not the case. So there's two things I want to talk about um, following what you just said. One is the great realization, which I think you touched on, which is the great realization is given a chance to break free of the daily grind, commute, work, sleep, commute, repeat, is that a lot of people got a chance to think about their lives and what they wanted to get out. Some people want their work to matter, to believe it's got true meaning, that your career defines you as having some intangible value. Whereas I tend to have the view that I work to live, I don't live to work. Not everybody sees it that way. But I think there's a much larger group of people who see working as a way to have a life outside of work. But the people who are driven, passionate, tend to set the tone or the direction and everybody else has to follow along behind. And generally that first group is managers and executives who believe in the self, 
the divine self-righteousness of their purpose in life, blah, blah, blah. The the silent majority sits there and, and has very little interest in speaking up about how work gets done. They just want to do it and get out there. The other thing you're touching on is toxic workplaces. People may be looking for reasons not to go back because they haven't been harassed at work because of looks or clothes or bodies, but that applies equally. Don't fit in with their colleagues. Still do the work have a specific skill set or have a specific role in the organization, you might not fit in with the rest of the crowd. But if you don't have to face up to them taunting you over, I largely believe that there are good reasons that people have reevaluated. If you're stuck in a toxic workplace, do you go back? Well, maybe you say now it's time to change and see if I can find a non-toxic workplace. If you're facing a long commute, you might say, maybe I can get a job locally. Now, I also believe probably the first start of this is that during COVID, there was a, a substantial group of people, maybe three to 5% of the workforce who decided that actually they didn't need to work. There's a lot of people out there in senior roles sitting on pensions and plans and just coasting in for the last year or two of their role. Or maybe there's people out there who just said like, do I really need to be working this hard? And they just exited the workforce. Well, that creates holes that have to be filled. It doesn't take a whole lot of people to start creating a movement because if you've got to fill 5% of roles across the board, then you start getting what I call the great realization, which is people realizing that, you know what? There's better jobs out there or there's other jobs out there. Maybe I just want to change jobs and I wouldn't have until I got a motivating factor or that final you know, activation process. I think what you're saying is very true. And I'm just going to repeat the great realization because I hope we can get this thing to start taking off (laughs) because it really is that. And when you talked about people who don't want to work or maybe don't want to do the kind of work they did, Mm. I was reminded of a conversation I had about two days ago with a friend of mine who lives in a metropolitan area well known for high tech. And she was, she sent me these beautiful photos of the new curtains that she had just gotten installed. Mm-hmm. And she said, I had to figure out how to install the, the traverse rod. The handyman who used to be head of manufacturing engineering for Lenovo directed the work. And I'm <laughs> the one that figured out the contraption. And what's, what hit me as of course it hit you is that the handyman used to be the head of manufacturing engineering for Lenovo. And I'm yeah. pretty sure whoever he is, could have gotten a job running manufacturing engineering anywhere in the world, but he would prefer to be a handyman in a high tech area because it's fun. Working with your hands actually gives a sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of reasons that people, people will look at this and say, Hey, I don't need this grief. Mm -hmm. And I also want to come back to that whole notion of a toxic workplace, because I'd like to raise something that doesn't get talked about a lot. As a woman in, a, in the high-tech field, God, I hate that as a woman thing, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'm yeah. going to do it. As a woman in the high-tech field, you know, I've been exposed to my share of harassment and toxic workplaces. And back in the day, that's just what work was. You just, yeah. that's mm-hmm. what it was. But what I think people don't realize today is that there's toxicity. You know, we've categorized and bundled one set with the Me Too movement and said, okay, it's not okay to harass women. But as you said, in many cases, there are men that just don't fit in or women that don't fit in who are getting harassed, not because they're women, but because they don't fit in. Mm. And when you were saying that, I was thinking of a colleague I had many years ago Mm. and he was black, had an all black team. They were crackerjack. They were absolutely great. Mm -hmm. He was also a very, a man full of integrity. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Uh, his immediate boss, who was white, and I will also say 
espoused this, the trappings of religion, mm. had a practice that I found out about when this guy called me up and said, Jonna, what do I need to do to get promoted? And I said, you're doing great. Your team is doing great. What's the problem? And he said, well, my boss, this mm. supposedly religious person, told me that I need to hang out with the gang at five o'clock when they go to strip bars at five o'clock on Fridays. Yeah. And Jonna, I heard the pain in his voice. He said, Jonna, if I do that, I will lose my marriage. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to strip bars just to get ahead. And Greg, you and I have talked about this. Yep. It's like that should not be a condition of work. I don't and think it I is was... anymore. Well, it's not as like... prevalent as it was. It used to be i just not happy doing that sort of thing personally. You never were. I and... remember you came home and told your wife that you went once just to see what the fuss was about. <laughs> well, I went once because I had to. I really felt obligated and I was really unhappy with the experience and I never did it again. I've done it as a young man. And it was a hell of a lot of fun where everybody was whooping and, but this was really just really uncomfortable and, you know, a bunch of old men being pervs. It wasn't. Exactly. You know, Honest. I think there's two parts of it here. As part of it is there's a lot of people who checked out for good reasons. And there's a lot of people who are downstepped into those gaps. There are people who are upshifting. And then all of a sudden that starts to build its own momentum. If you know what I mean? Once that, mm -hmm. it's not a great resignation unless you're an executive who has to fill positions because your company has a toxic workplace or because your company's going down the going down downhill, or because you believe that on-premise staff actually has some mystical value. And let's just talk about that. There is a very vocal minority of people for whom they feel cheated that they can't complain about their executive travel. Like, you know that group that's on Twitter all the time bragging about, I'm on this plane, I'm in that hotel, and I've just done four days on the road, I'm a living legend. You know, and I'm looking at, you know, posting photos of tipsy corporate white males in a overpriced hotel bars attempting to prove that their moaning has got value. A lot of those people have very oversized self-confidence and self-belief that what they do matters. And so they're very loud about it, very prominent on social media, certainly. I, I like to think of them as similar to vegans. They'll tell you how great they are. Do you know what I mean? Like they don't want to leave. Uh, yes. Any... Yes. And, and I do want to highlight something for folks who are listening that we have nothing against white males. You mm. are one. And I like you quite a bit. <laughs> I think the, yeah. I think the, the relevant point here is minority. There's a yeah. small, highly vocal group that defines what defines yeah. the culture. And they do tend to be white males. Yeah. I do want to tell a story though, because when you raised this, I, it just brought to mind a story literally two days ago, actually yesterday, I had a call with a client. Uh, and we were talking about various things and some of the you know challenges in their IT department. Uh, and one of the major challenges, not in the IT department, but in the company as a whole, is that they can't find talented staff to do the work that they need to do. Mm. And one of, my, one of my colleagues said, why is that? And the person I was talking to said, well, it turns out that people don't want to come work for us because senior executives want everyone to be in the office. And they have options that don't require them to be in the office. Exactly. And so they don't want to come here. And while I bust out laughing, he smiled just a teeny little bit. And he knew what I was going to do. He was mm. pushing my buttons. I laugh and I said, I told him that last year. And my client just snickered and said, you did. I yeah. was there. And I mean, you can actually go into the job search boards and say yeah. remote work required. And if you just do that filter because you don't, then that just cuts you out of the potential you know, for companies who don't want to offer that, that's fine if you choose that, but there's consequences to making that decision. It's up to you to decide. I, I personally think the, the most fallacious, like the most false argument that you can give me is that seeing each other in the corridor somehow creates 
opportunities for work to happen. Because if you're suggesting to me that if I go to work and I can bump into you into the corridor and suddenly something gets done because I accidentally met you, what you've actually admitted to is you're a total incompetent. You're unable to structure your workload in such a way that unless you get to bump into people in a, uh, luckily in a corridor, the job doesn't get done. The work's not being done or the ideas aren't, whatever it is. That is just an outright admission of incompetence. I agree with you. And mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is people don't understand how to structure spontaneity. And mm -hmm. if you reacted to that statement by saying, Jana, you can't structure spontaneity, that's what makes it spontaneous. <laughs> then I would humbly submit to you that you haven't got a clue and you need to yeah. work on this. Well, what do you think I'll, I'll one you... day a week at work is? Structured exactly. spontaneity, right? You, you right. <laughs> people exactly. go to work. That what we're now saying is people go to work one day a week as a team to get together so that they can play games. When I say play games, I mean like human interaction, bonding, right. coaching, mentoring. It's not real work that's getting done on that one day of the week. It's all of the human stuff being packed into one day out of five. And I would also recommend that there are much better ways to do that. My ongoing recommendation, and I say this as someone who has re worked remotely since the 1990s and managed a remote global workforce since the 1990s, so it's not a trivial experience. The basic thing you need to do to succeed in that kind of an environment is make sure your team gets together physically once or twice a year, someplace beautiful, someplace fun, someplace you can actually play by the real meaning of play, like hike, swim, ski, whatever your thing is, generally active and outdoors because that causes people to get a little calmer and, and easier. And then you get to know each other. You sit around, talk over dinner. You get to understand who's married, who's not, who's mm. gay, who's straight, You know, who loves pets, who can't stand animals. Get out of the office, go someplace, do that for a week. That'll last for six to eight months easily. Mm. It's a lot more efficient than spending 20% of your time interacting in a god-awful corporate office. <laughs> and, it, you know, you're going to get a whole lot more product productivity and creativity out of that. And yeah. I, that's the kind of thing we always did. And it just seems so obvious. Yeah. You know, one week, a one week a year, that's one out of 52 weeks. That's a whole lot more efficient than having one day a, a week. It's even cheaper when you look at things because you, you could tear down those annoying corporate offices or, in, as I would recommend, repurpose them come to that in a second, but you could tear those down. You could have the most glamorous vacation in the universe for your team for the money, the cost of that real estate. Yes. And that's what we're seeing. And this is what I say to people who say, uh, everybody's going back to the office. They're not. CFOs have discovered how much money you can save if people aren't coming back to the office. I mean, I think it was Goldman Sachs. They shut three out of 10 buildings in New York permanently exactly not, exactly not as they should have yeah apparently frankly, the leases but... came up and the cfo just said well we don't need them and then of course the ceo stood up and said because the ceo would have had to sign off sign off on that decision right then stood up and said everybody's got to come back to the office there's lies and lies going on here so the cfo has got that money back this is why i think also we talk a bit about corporate travel that money has been saved for the last three years and there's been no noticeable loss of revenue. Productivity, yes, no, exactly. No, no loss of productivity or professional services have continued to be delivered. Networks were being deployed. Infrastructure was being managed and operated. Outsourcing contracts continued to work. You know, remember for years, vendors said, no, no, salespeople get on planes. They wear out shoe leather. They drive somewhere. They see the customer face to face. They ask for the purchase order. They get it signed in front of them and they walk out the door. That has all been proven to be false. Uh, false. Whatever happened, that is now false. Let's not say it was false. Let's say that it is now false.
that money isn't going to come back. CFOs aren't, are looking at budgets and saying, why is your sales budget now got 30% corporate travel when last year it was 1%? I certainly hope not, although we're counting on CFOs to save us. God save us. But, uh, <laughs> well, I do. I'm a big fan of the metaphor about insurance companies. Insurance companies are actually the moral founding of modern businesses. It's going to be insurance companies that define environmental goals. Things like CEO insurance, for example. If you haven't got an uh, you know, ESG strategy and you're not contributing to the safety of the world, they might not insure you because they might have to pay out if you're at risk of being sued for failing to have it. I do think you're correct in that. And in yeah. fact, if you sort of carry the metaphor and say the CFO is, is the person whose job it is to quantify risk within the company, although there may also be a risk risk manager or head of risk. I, I do agree with you on the premise that insurance companies are the moral bedrock because once you've quantified risk, it's it's a bit like quantifying sin. You know, mm. do you really want to go to hell for the rest of your life <laughs> for eating that piece of beef on Friday or whatever it is your your religion is? And you kind of go, nah, steak, hell, steak, hell, nah. I'll, I'll have to do that. It's back. a very interesting, it's a very interesting to come back to my point. The other there's two other factors that I think were are creating the great realization. One is retirement or early retirement. People who are in the workforce looking at their lives and saying, I can quit and go. They may be retiring from a career, say, in technology and moving into something else, downstepping. But I think this is also done against a, back, a background of skilled worker shortages. We don't have enough skilled workers in certain fields. Companies have made the decision over the last two decades to say things. They've abandoned the idea of internal training or internal skills development and team structure. And in the name of short-term shareholder value, usually, but often in terms of, uh, it was often McKinsey who came in and you know, Bain Consulting said, why do you have these training programs? Take them out and we'll have extra revenue by the end of this year. Give me my bonus. I'm out of here type stuff. But the sort of things that we're talking about is it's cheaper and quicker to hire skilled staff than to create them, which is false, as we've seen. Uh, there's no value in skilled staff and they should not be valued or paid well because you can always go and buy another one. And in a scarcity economy, that's not true. Mm -hmm. uh, neither one is true. By the way, I just have to interject. I've never written this story. I used to write science fiction and get paid for it. Um, uh -huh. Wow. But uh, yeah, I did. Uh, novel, short stories, bunch of stuff. But uh, one short story I always wanted to write was this notion of AI robots. You know, everybody says, oh, we're going to build AI equipped robots and they're going to be just like people, only better. And the, the fundamental premise is once they built them, they realized that once you built it, it required 18 to 25 years of careful monitoring and training, i.e. parenting, <laughs> to turn them into functioning humans and not sociopaths. Yeah. So, so that whole notion that, yes, it is very expensive to bring up someone and train someone properly, it is. But I'm also going to further underscore your comment about the skills shortage and the demographics, because I want to point out two things. First one is the baby boomers are retiring. Guess who comes after the baby boomers? Everybody goes, I know, I know, millennials. Wrong. Gen X. That would be my generation and your generation. And guess what? There aren't very many of us. We were the baby bust. Yes. Um, the problem is we're the ones with the experience to understand how technology is going to work in a broader context. Millennials will get there, but that's the kind of wisdom you can only get from decades of doing the wrong thing or discovering <laughs> the wrong thing. There aren't very many Gen Xers out there, just yep. plain demographically. The second point is there are very, very few of us with solid engineering skills because engineering itself went through a drought period where was right after- devalued. Right. Yeah. Well, from the 1990s, from the 1990s through about 2010, 
the number of degrees you can go look any in any country look at the number of degrees in engineering and they plummeted hmm. so now we have a skill shortage and a people shortage and a skilled people shortage that isn't easily fixable so there's two more points about why skilled workers are shortage and the one that i like is people will gain skills in their own time we've seen a lot of that in it where people go out and do textbooks and do the certified training courses i'll notice that the certified training courses for most it vendors are now breaking down i don't know if you've noticed but they are becoming marketing exercises so instead of actually being so the original genesis for many vendor certifications was to support the sales of the products. Literally, what was happening is people would buy these products and then couldn't make them work. So they couldn't extract value from them. And so they never came back and bought them again. So the certified workforce was created to make sure that the products would be sold and then installed and then used. And that was the generation of original certification programs. But now people are expected to get skills in their own time and at their own cost. They also have an expectation to get paid for those skills. So if you're a programmer, you know, if you want to be a programmer and you go out and spend two years developing skills in your own time, nights and weekends, you expect to get paid some really substantial salary because you've done the work. And a lot of companies go, but, oh, you've only got one year's experience or whatever. And you go like, no, 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 no. I've got the skills and you don't. That's one thing. And the last one that I think we're seeing a, a fallacy around is that recruitment is a low value activity and can easily be outsourced. And this is the one that we see people complaining about two things one is you see startups particularly high-tech startups who are very egocentric and love to tweet about all the experiences and they complain about how, how hard it is to hire people and how bad recruiters are and then they say and one of the most important jobs in my life is actually recruiting and it's like well then why are you outsourcing it it has actually always been a high value activity and there was another mistake made because companies were spending so much time doing recruiting and training and the consultants, Bain and McKinsey and co, came in and said, you should not be spending money on training and skills development and recruiting. You should outsource all of that. And that gave them a short-term benefit. And at the end of the day, recruiting failed. Now, outsource recruiting is a real problem because, A, recruiters have many companies to play with. It's not like recruiters are better than you at recruiting. They're often worse. And that's been my experience is I really don't like being recruited by recruiters. And I've taken over 75 jobs through recruitment companies. It was always just a numbers game. It's literally put your name in a hat and if yours get picked out, you got the role. They didn't have any particular skills. They didn't really know how to match you. They didn't do any personality matching or anything. There's a whole bunch of false advertising and belief and delusional like, ah, the recruiter will do that, all that for me. That's not at all how it works. Those are the four things that I think is wrong with the skilled worker shortages. It's lack of skills training, when you get to a company, they don't value you. My favorite story there is when I was working for a telco and in a mobile telco, and they wanted to hire me. And I said, well, I would need this much money. And the manager said, that's more than twice what I earn. I can't hire you because the company doesn't allow me to hire people for your role that earn more than me. And I said, but I am more valuable to you than blah, 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 blah. And there was just no way that, so they ended up with all of these people that couldn't do the job, but that was all they could afford to hire. It was comedy, comedy gold. Well, and it's funny about telcos. They finally had to create a hierarchy because their hierarchy basically gave status to the number of direct reports you had and mm. the size of the pyramid under you. Mm. They created a hierarchy for highly, highly skilled, you know, PhD level computer scientists mm. and engineers where you had to have basically 10,000 phantom reports in order to be earning what you were earning. 
And I, I knew people who literally were at a level where supposedly they had 10,000 reports. The people didn't exist, but that was, you had to, you had to have 10,000 people under you if you were in management to get that salary. And I just thought it was hilarious that Did they you, had to have. Uh, so you know where the office of the CTO came from? That's where uh, it came no. from. Literally picking engineers out and putting them onto a separate salary so that it didn't exceed that structure. That's funny because I created an office of the CTO. I sort of did that. I had to work through their salary because we were at a, an organization where you were paid based on the billable hour. And my, what I said was, we're taking these guys out of the billable mm -hmm. hour game, except with a small minority of their time. And the problem was they were the most profitable for the company. So that was an issue. But and um, that is, that's yeah. where the office of the CTO started in vendors like IBM mm -hmm. and Cisco and so forth, was they had engineers who were inherently more valuable to the company than their executives were, and their executives wouldn't pay them. So they had to come up with a pay structure that let them stay and blah, 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 blah. Before we wrap up and mm -hmm. kind of come to our, your four points and my recommendations, I just want to highlight something about the skills that you raised, because I really want to distinguish between skills and education. And by education, I mean, you can go and learn a new programming language. That's a skill. You can learn to go configure a box. That's a skill. Learning a Fourier transform is an education. If you do not have an engineering education, which tells you that you can think you can actually contextualize what's going on in a system, it doesn't matter how many mm. skills you're going to get. You, you're going to find yourself in the position, and I see this all the time, where a programmer tries to write a routine for a problem that is not NP-complete. Fundamentally not solvable, but if you don't understand the concept of NP-completeness, you're going to keep whacking away at it because you don't realize you've just come, come across, you know, a bedrock concept in computer science and mathematics. Mm. And so the problem is you can go get all the training you want, but getting what you're supposed to be learning in university and graduate school is the bedrock yeah, foundational think, stuff. Let me turn that a little bit from my point of view. There's absolute value in foundational skills that you learn at university, mathematics, right. radiation. Right. So for me, it was mathematics, radiation, physics. And logical electricity, like, yes. You know, electricity and magnetism, logical thinking, set theory, and yep. mathematics, yes. However, and operating and operating systems. The skills still needed to be there. So you can get by on skills, but you will be a much better generally. This is a very broad statement. If you have foundational skills that you get taught that only get come in an educational environment, learn as you learning Fourier transforms, as you say, so you can understand antenna design. Very helpful for Wi-Fi, wireless networking. It's it's actually helpful in a lot of communications environments, but yes. Yes. Understanding Ethernet frames is not really a foundational exercise. No, it really isn't. Uh, yeah. Right. Ethernet, because it's Ethernet today, tomorrow it'll be token ring. No, it Ethernet won't, is but you know dumbest, what I mean. Yeah. Everything we do in technology tends to dumb down to the dumbest thing. So, so yeah, just to go, so the things that I think is that it's not a great resignation. That's only if you're looking at it from the point of view of one company. If you pull back a little bit, think about it from the whole point of view here. I think it's just a great realization that I can change my job. There's a whole bunch of power which is now given to employees that wasn't there 10 years ago. And people are realizing that they can exercise that. They can walk out the door into the next job. And that there's a whole bunch of ways. And in fact, recruitment companies make this worse because they're constantly poaching your people. It's interesting that companies have actually created this in their own way by outsourcing to recruitment companies. Recruitment companies now exist to prey on weak companies. They're especially good at preying on companies who are only want people to work from the office, who've got toxic workplaces, because they will just continue, they will have people coming in and walking back out the door. And those companies, interestingly, and I've noticed this in, in one place, they don't see the cycle, right? That they're actually perpetuating the cycle. They'll hire people, they'll come in, 
and then they'll leave and they blame the recruitment company for giving them bad people, but it's their fault for doing bad recruitment, right? They're not hiring people who like working in a toxic workplace or they're not hiring people who want to work at the office. They're not filtering. Skilled purchasing, like it, it, to me, outsourcing your recruitment to a recruitment agency and there's a mission that your purchasing skills are bad. You don't know what you're buying, so you're going to give it to somebody else. I would just sort of wrap this up because I cannot resist the urge to be prescriptive as much as you'd hate it, Greg. Mm -hmm. I would say if you're listening to this, you're probably not part of the problem. You're probably going, yeah, that applies. But yeah. what I would suggest you do, keep in mind, try to focus on what you really like about working and look for a workplace that gives you that. In my case, I like solving problems. I like puzzle solving. It's not an existential it doesn't provide existential meaning to my life. It provides satisfaction. And that's me. Other people may feel differently. You may just be working to live. That's cool too. If you go into an organization and you're in the position of walking away from a job or turning down a job because they're not meeting your needs, I would strongly suggest that you politely mm -hmm. explain demographics, explain the skill shortage, and explain the fact that there are there are machines out there that will poach your employees and there are places for them to go that will deliver a good work experience and that as politely and respectfully as you can, you should basically say the person across the desk from you is wrong. And this idea, this idea that people will fundamentally return to the office and will go back the way it was is over. And yeah. here are the yeah. reasons why. You know, let's be careful. For most IT white collar work, we know that it can be done remotely and people will come to the work come to the office one day a week if that's what you want if that's the but the long-term state is going to be something different people aren't going to come to the work to the office one day a week forever that's a short-term thing I, I I agree I think we've we've hit on a bunch of foundational reasons why everything's changing yeah. hopefully if you're listening to this you're going these are some interesting and provocative ideas that I will use in reevaluating and in my great realization and by the way if you do do that. Please write to us and let us know what you're doing. Please write to us and tell us your story. We'd love to feature your story on an upcoming episode. So Greg, how can they reach us? They can reach us by going to our website, packetpushes.net slash FU, where you can give us your follow-up. Tell us what you think. If you've got topics you want us to cover, got ideas, if you think want to tell us what we got right or what we got wrong, we'll always admit to being wrong. If we said something that you don't agree with, then please let us know. And uh, send us ideas, packetpushes.net slash FU. It's a webpage. We don't track you. We don't need your details. It's anonymous. Uh, as always, remember that on packetpushes.net, we've got many other fine free podcasts across our network. You can get a hold of those. Just search for Packet Pushes in your favorite podcatcher. And as always, remember that here at Heavy Strategy, the question is probably more interesting than the answers.